Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. I'm one of your bearded hosts. My name is Chris, and I'm here with my buddy Tyler. Tyler, hello. Hello there. How you doing, man? Happy, well, we're actually recording this on Sunday, <laughs> which is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to you, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Father's Day. It's, uh, we talked off air. I'm going through some emotions because today's the, or this year's the first, um, Father's Day where I haven't, like, physically been, like, with my son. Um, so it's a little hard, a little difficult. Today's not been a good day, but, um. We are here doing this, which is always a good time. So it makes me happy. Yeah, I'm just going to bring the show down as much as I can. Right now. <laughs> let's, let's wreck it from the top. <laughs> Better have some really upbeat topics to talk about. Oh, yeah, they're going to be so great. Speaking of, uh, what are you going to be covering today? I'm covering Bigfoot. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to cover uh, one of those light, uplifting episodes. I'm covering the mysterious death of George Reeves nice and uh that's happy fun topics (laughs) totally and a lot of kids don't know who he is so we'll get into all of that soon and um just real quick uh, you know i think it's a great time to pander to the audience if you haven't already uh if you could just give us a a five-star review and a little blurb about how much you love the show and how great we are and you just love the beards that would go a long way for us it'd mean the world and we will thank you yeah, raise our spirits, please. Yes, yes, because sometimes you just need that, you know? It makes yeah. us feel good, like we're actually doing something that you actually like it, you love us. You want yeah. some more of us. Yeah, exacto mundo. So, yeah. Yeah, I like it. Let's do this. Cool, and uh, I believe uh, you went first last week, so I get to start the show this week. Yeah, no pressure. Before I get started, I just want to mention that this story will contain the mention of suicide and maybe a little bit graphic at times. I understand this is, uh, could be, this subject could be uncomfortable for some people. If you want to skip ahead, by all means, feel free to do so. Uh, we here at Bearded Things, we take suicide very seriously. If you need to talk at any time, feel free to reach out. We're also going to leave the number to the suicide hotline in our show notes if you need help. Speak up. Don't be afraid to ask. And with that, let's get started. So let's imagine it's 1959 in Hollywood. You get a late night call from your neighbor, Leonor, to come over for a couple of drinks and just hang out. It's summertime in the hills of Hollywood, and a nice cold drink would be really nice. So you walk over, and a few other neighbors are all hanging out in the living room, laughing, singing, and very, very much drinking. You pour yourself a drink and take a seat. A few minutes later, a man comes down the stairs in a bathrobe, yelling at his girlfriend for inviting everyone over. He realizes he's making a scene and stops himself. He takes a moment to get himself together, apologizes to everyone, and excuses himself as he somberly walks back upstairs. All eyes are on Leonore. She takes a slow slip of her drink and says, he's going to shoot himself. Then... Through the thin ceiling, they heard the bedside drawer open. He's getting the gun out now. He's going to do it. And sure enough, a single shot rang out. The group ran upstairs and found the man dead on the bed. That man? George Reeves. Who was George Reeves? Well, I think this little quote would probably help out a little bit with the description of who he is. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird. 
No, it's a plane. It's two people who obviously had never seen a bird or a plane before, <laughs> let alone the last son of Krypton who could leap over the tallest building in a single bound. Before there was the dreamy Henry Cavill and his mustache, before there was the awkward Brandon Ruth, Dean Kane, or even Christopher Reeve, there was one man who donned the red cape, blue tights with the signature underwear. And that man was George Reeves. Like most actors of the time, things weren't going smoothly. After moving from Iowa to Pasadena, California, he did just about everything he could to break into the movie scene. He was an amateur boxer and would act at the Pasadena Playhouse. He caught his big break when a casting director went to one of his plays, and eventually he landed roles in movies like Gone with the Wind and even headlined in a picture until World War II put his career on hold. He went to war, and when he returned, his career was essentially over. His heat cooled off, and no one really cared about him. That is until 1952, when he was cast as the lead in The Adventures of Superman at Warner Brothers. Now, a couple of things to note. Nowadays, booking anything comic book related is essentially a goldmine. There's going to be money and lots of it. It's a prestigious role with action figures and sequels, but back in the 50s, it was really frowned upon. It was kid stuff. Only out-of-luck actors who were willing to sell out would do something like that. The Adventures of Superman was also on TV. And until recently, no movie actor would dare be on TV. It was essentially slumming it. It was like the podcast of the 50s. Okay, that's kind of a swipe at us, but like, really, we're no Clark Gable and Rock Hudson. Which is kind of the point. You just didn't cross over back then. TV actors rarely did film, and film actors would never do TV. He reluctantly accepted the role, and he sort of became a huge star overnight. I say sort of because every week, kids from all over the country would tune in to watch Kalalil. I'm sorry, but my inner nerd is a little too excited to be covering Superman. So kids across America would tune in to watch Superman save the day while disguised as mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent. But... George himself was broke. TV just didn't pay back then. So here he was, the biggest star on Saturday mornings, too broke to actually live the lifestyle that he had to portray for the press. He had to start being creative. So he started doing appearances and comic book signings as Superman. He would show up at pro wrestling events as Superman, which led to him having to push his body more than he really should have. Turns out, George wasn't born on Krypton. And he doesn't get his power from the rays of the sun. So at these wrestling events, when they hit him in the back with the stool, it actually hurt. There's a pretty famous legend that I can't prove is real, but given the time frame, it kind of checks out. At one of his Superman appearances, there's this tale of a little boy who brought his dad's gun. He pointed it at George and said, if you were really Superman, these bullets won't hurt you. George was quick and said, you're right, but those bullets would bounce off me and hit someone else in the crowd, and you don't want to do that, do you? The kid lowered the gun and said no. George's managers rushed the kid and took the gun away. And like I said, this may be more of a legend, but it sounds like it could be real. All of this was taking a toll on his body and his mind. He began drinking, and his drinking was getting out of control, which was only fueling a long battle with depression. Which brings us to the night of June 15th, 1959, a few hours before that party at the start of the story. 
George and his girlfriend, Leonore Lemon, went out for a late-night dinner and drinks, while their guest, Robert Condon, stayed behind. They returned around 11 p.m., and George was tired and went straight to bed. That's when Leonore began inviting a few of the neighbors over for late-night drinks. It was around 1 a.m. when George came back downstairs and was visibly irritated and upset about the noise. According to the official police report, George caught sight of a neighbor he had never really seen before, a man named William Bliss. Reeves approached Bliss and said, quote, Get the hell out of my house. Reeves took a moment, calmed himself down, and apologized while he made his way back upstairs. The report continues. Leonore mentioned the comment about him shooting himself. They heard the drawer open and then that fateful shot. William Bliss was the first one up the stairs where he found George laying naked on the bed with his feet still on the floor, a pistol in between his ankles. When the police arrived, they found everyone still drinking in the living room and George still naked on the bed. They noted that he was shot in the right temple and a shell casing was underneath his body. They mentioned that the blood splatter was all the way up the ceiling where they found the bullet lodged. After a brief investigation, they labeled it a suicide and officially closed the case. Now, that may be where the official story ends, but a few things don't quite add up. Like when Leonore called out the play-by-play of George actually killing himself. When investigators asked her about that, she said, quote, Oh gosh, I was only kidding. Well, firstly, that really isn't funny. Secondly, out of all the things to say he was going to do, why exactly that? If she said as he went up the stairs, oh, he's going to slam the door now, door slams. Yep, he's still mad. But no, she gave a play-by-play of his, quote, suicide, which is just kind of odd. It's also strange that he was naked. Seconds before his death, he was downstairs in front of a group of people, which no one mentioned him nude. In all honesty, if Henry Cavill walked into any room I was in and he was naked, I would probably make a note of that, at least for future retellings. Like, dude, I ended up at a party at Henry Cavill's house and the guy just walked into the living room, super balls flowing in the wind. But no one mentions it. Ever. Stripping nude isn't exactly a common thing to do before killing yourself either. It actually makes it stand out a little bit. Like, if you know you're going to die, you generally don't care about things like gas in the car, bills getting paid, or stains on your pajamas. Author E.J. Fleming noticed another inconsistency. This one has to do with the body. With the way George was sitting on the edge of the bed, his body should have fallen forward instead of landing on his back, which brought Fleming to another strange point. With the angle he allegedly shot himself and the type of pistol he used, which was a Luger 9mm, the casing should have landed in front of him, not under his body. And for those who don't know, there essentially are two types of pistols. You have your revolvers, which are like the Wild West style guns, and then you have your semi-automatics, which are more like the mobster ones, where the top slides back and forth and the bullet flies out the side after you shoot. This is one of those latter ones where the the casing of the bullet, the part that shoots out, should have landed in front of him, but it was under his body. He also noted that the bullet was lodged in the ceiling, and that shouldn't have been possible. If he shot himself in the right temple, the bullet would have landed in the wall to his left. 
The only way the bullet could have ended up in the ceiling would be if his head was tilted to the right side at 45 degrees. Which would mean the gun should have been either on the bed or still in his hand, not in between his feet on the floor. There were also two additional bullet holes in the floor of the bedroom. When the LAPD asked Leonore about them, she said she made one of them a few days prior when she was fooling around with a gun. The other one, well, there's no explanation for. According to the chief of LAPD, William Parker, when he asked about them, he said, meh, and moved right along. Okay, that's not the exact quote. The exact quote is, the additional bullet holes are of no significance, which really doesn't sit well with me. Mm -mm. You have shots fired directly in a crime scene from the same gun. I would think there'd be some sort of significance. Here's where I think the major conspiracy comes into play. Before Leonore and George were a thing, George Reeves was actually dating a married woman. Now, not just a regular married woman, but the wife of a Hollywood fixer. You know how a scandal breaks out in the press and a few days later, no one is talking about it? That's a fixer. And back in the day, studios would hire these guys to make problems go away. They'd bribe police, pay off mistresses, cover up abortions and rehabs, and worked really closely with the mob for a lot of the, quote, bigger problems. Essentially, not a guy you want to piss off. The wife's name was Tony Mannix, wife of Eddie Mannix. Eddie happened to be one of the best fixers in the industry at that time. George and Tony's affair lasted almost a decade. She actually bought the house for George that he ended up dying in. She bought his clothes, she bought his car, and by all accounts, she was actually funding his life. Eddie was actually fully supportive of the affair and would actually take the couple out to dinner and invite George on family vacations where Eddie would bring his own mistress. I mean, it's, it kind of sounds like they were just doing the whole Hollywood swinging thing, but Eddie was still a dangerous man. According to the Hollywood rumor mill, Tony was devastated after they broke up. So could Eddie have taken care of the problem for her and bought off all the witnesses drinking downstairs? Technically, that's what his job entails anyway. And there's also a supposed link between Eddie Mannix and William Bliss. Now, there's no like direct evidence that links William Bliss to Eddie Mannix, but let's look at a couple of things with that. So Bliss was kind of the random guest at that party who wasn't really with anyone the night of George Reeves' death. He was also the first one to run upstairs to discover the body, and he was the only one that George was upset with personally for being at his house. Now, can we prove any of this? Not really, so I don't really want to spend a lot of time going down that rabbit hole, but it is an oddity. The ruling never sat well with George's mother either. She spent the rest of her life hiring investigators and challenging the official ruling of the suicide, losing every single time. They actually made a not-so-great movie about this with Ben Affleck playing George Reeves called Hollywoodland. It's kind of a Hollywood noir flick, and Affleck was actually pretty good as George and Superman, and I think he's on, the only actor who's been both Superman and Batman, so that's kind of cool. And Daredevil, technically. 
The death of George Reeves is still labeled a suicide to this day, but personally, I really have my doubts. There are just too many odd things and circumstances that don't quite add up. Until there's more information, this has been the story of George Reeves and the mysterious death of Superman. That's kind of nuts. Like, I don't think it's a suicide either. Like, that... If it was like you take out the whole like Eddie Mannix thing, okay, yeah, get it. The guy's down on his luck, makes sense. But then it's like you have the guy that like that's literally his job is to like make people go away and like cover up evidence and stuff. And he's like the best in the business. Like seems kind of like on the nose. <laughs> it kind of fits. And there's unsubstantiated links that I didn't include just because I don't want to go down unsubstantiated links. Mm-hmm. But according to legend, the week up until George's death. Uh, he got in a really bad car accident. He lived on uh, Benedict Canyon, which is a windy road in the Hollywood Hills. And he was leaving his house and he crashed into a cement pole because his brake lines were cut. Hmm. Uh, there's rumors that he was shot at and that people were trying to break into his home. But none of that can be substantiated. But if that's true, and assuming it is true, we do know he was in a car accident. We do know his brakes were bled. There, there was no brake fluid in his brakes. So that's that's a real event. Can we link it? Not really. But again, that would be something that Eddie would have done. Yeah, definitely. There was a, a man whose name I forget at the moment. And again, it's it's an unsubstantiated claim. According to this guy, who I believe was a photographer, he became friends with Tony Maddox later in her life. And... Towards the end, Tony had pulled him aside and says, I just need to confess something to you because I don't want to die with this on me. And he's like, okay. He was figuring, you know, it was like she had a son back in the day and had to give him up because of society or whatever. She said that Tony, that her, Tony and Eddie actually had George killed and it's eaten at her every day the rest of her life. The problem with that is that's, hearsay from like a third party mm-hmm. we don't know if this guy's making a cash grab you know this was uh, i think in 94 when he made the confession mm-hmm. so we can't prove that it's him but it does make sense yeah and then the whole fact that the the bullet being being in the ceiling above him yeah does, that doesn't make any sense yeah no, if you shoot yourself in the right you know if you put your arm at a fort like a salute with a gun yeah and pull the trigger, it's going to the left. Yeah. I've like, seen JFK, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's no way that bullet should have been in the ceiling. And the casing wouldn't land underneath you at that point. Like, right. It just doesn't make, like, if it's the right, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know of any pistols that have the chamber on the left hand side that would have ejected it behind him. It would have ejected to the, the outside, like, you know, towards the, the floor. Right. That's so weird. Yeah. I, I don't think, yeah, there's no way. No. And um, then the fact, you know, another thing that was just odd, right? It doesn't, it might not necessarily mean anything. It's just odd. Mm-hmm. Even if you hate your partner, <laughs> right? Like you and your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whatever it is, you and your partner mm. could hate the hell out of each other. If they kill themselves upstairs, you're not going to continue the party until the police get there. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it's kind of a mood suspicious. killer. Yeah. Absolutely. And the fact that she 
did a play-by-play about him going up to kill mm-hmm. himself, mentioning he's grabbing his gun now, he's going to do it. Like, that's... Yeah, that's super weird. It's it's more than a coincidence, I think. Yeah. I'm no, not a I detective, agree. but... We should not talk about it anymore because then Eddie Mannix's relatives are going to come find us. They could. They could. And that was actually <laughs> the guy who became friends with Tony Maddox late in her life when he made the confession. Mm-hmm. Tony warned him not to ever say anything because his <laughs> life would be in danger. Yeah. So he was a little bit younger than like that generation, than Tony and Eddie and all them. So he waited like an additional few years to come forward. That way everybody involved would be dead. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. But on the flip side, they also can't substantiate what he said. True. So I don't know. It's like, do should I make comments about how John Wayne confessed something to me? <laughs> like you know, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I I don't know if I can trust him, but I do think it leaves another avenue to investigate. Definitely, it'd be interesting to see if they ever did like a cold case thing on it and actually just investigated, yeah, reopen it. Yeah, exactly. Another strange thing about his death. So you would think they would go and take like fingerprints from the gun. I mean, granted, this was the f- 1959, so investigations weren't exactly like state of the art like they are today by today's standards. Uh, yeah. The they said the gun was recently oiled, so it was too slick to take any fingerprints. So they're like, okay, well, let's just go and check the body now. They embalmed the body almost immediately before an autopsy be, could be conducted. So if there were any traces on his body, yeah. it was washed clean. There was no traces of gunpowder, nothing. Yeah, that's super suspect. Yeah, which again kind of falls into Eddie's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. If this was Among Us, Eddie would be getting voted off for being <laughs> super sus. So <laughs> much sus. <laughs> that's nuts. That's crazy. Yeah, and that's that's the origin of Superman, and I think the birth of the curse of Superman. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, because we had the weird, untimely death of George Reeves. Christopher mm-hmm. Reeves uh, mm-hmm. ended up succumbing to injuries from a horseback accident. Dean Kane became Dean Kane, <laughs> and the rest have not been notable. Superman Henry Cavill's doing okay. I mean, The Witcher is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, heck yeah, and he's just dreamy. So mm-hmm. he yeah, might. Let's not, not let's not jinx him. I know he's too good looking for anything to happen. That's true. All right, on that note, let's take a quick commercial break so we can compose ourselves, getting all hot and bothered over here. It's Henry Cavill. Yeah, we'll be right back. And we're back. And now it's time to get into our banter with the beards. So what is banter with the beards, Lise? Banter with the beards is is our fun, unscripted, off-the-cuff, uh, just conversation between the two of us where we take questions from you the listeners and we throw them in a random generator and it spits out a thing for us and we read it online for you guys and just kind of give you some insight into the crazy wacky minds that are the beardsies yeah and understand you uh have a good one that you that you've uh that we found yeah we found it we plugged it in and it spit out and it says have you ever used a ouija board and if so what happened uh yes cool nice story (laughs) (laughs) moving Uh, on (laughs) so uh yeah this was many 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 years ago now um i feel like the lady in titanic it's been 84 years (laughs) 
yeah, so I try and understand what's happening with things like Ouija boards. One of our bearded friends up in the PN dubs, uh, shout out to Jenna. She was there. She was actually a roommate of mine at the time, and we thought it would be a great idea. I think she was a roommate at that time. She moved in roundabout then uh, to, to mess around with the Ouija board, try and do some experiments and see what's making this thing work. Turns out it was not a great idea. Hmm. Um, the house was pretty spooky and somewhat haunted before, and everything amped up. Um Doors would rattle. There'd be footsteps in our ceiling, and it was a one-story house. Um, whistles in the backyard, whispers, um, just every kind. Things would go missing. Important things like wallets and keys absolutely to never resurface again, which is really annoying when you lose your car keys <laughs> mm -hmm. and you have to find out how to get new car keys. That's not yeah. an easy thing to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, just the, the paranormal activity in this home just, I mean, skyrocketed. And a few other things happened that uh, I'll keep offline for now. And we just thought, you know, it might be a good thing to get rid of this. So um, we had some friends come over and we did kind of like this bonfire in a fire pit that I had in the backyard. And um, we were like, we're going to burn this thing. So we put it in the fire and it literally wasn't burning. And we're like, that's not real. This is what happens to other people's <laughs> friends, right? Like mm. my cousin's friend tried to do this and then his neighbor came over and then it didn't work. Mm. But it really didn't burn like at all. We put lighter fluid. Um, I put like Zippo lighter fluid. I put a little bit of gasoline from a lawnmower in there. <laughs> you name it. If it was flammable. I put uh, Bombay Sapphire Dry English Gin, which puts up quite the flame if you ever need a nice little mm -hmm. uh, fire booster. I put some of that in there. Nothing was burning this thing. Eventually, I mean, after probably a good five, ten minutes, maybe a little bit more, of just leaving this thing in this roaring, crazy fire. It was one of those fires. Like, so the fire pit had a, it was a chiminea. And mm -hmm. the top part where it's like a chimney it looked like a jet engine, right? It was just like, <laughs> like a butane <laughs> torch shooting out the top of this thing. That's how much fluid was in this. And uh, the board was not burning. Finally, after again, like five, 10 minutes, the board started to burn and it burned green. Nice. Which were like, uh, someone put some copper in that Ouija board. Apparently, or that's the <laughs> color of the demons. Could be. Yeah. I know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just know at the same time that uh, we're messing around with this Ouija board, that same period, it might have been a couple of weeks. It wasn't very long at all. Um, the activity picked up in the house. There were some crazy events that happened in the house. And that sucker did not burn. Like, that's a true story. And people are like, it wouldn't burn. It just did not want to burn. I even had... Uh, and a girl I dated many, 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 many years ago, uh, her aunt was a nun at the Vatican and she sent me holy water. I remember this, uh, that was blessed by the Pope. So as far as holy water goes, if that's something you believe in, apparently this was like the top shelf holy water. Yeah. Got the good stuff. It's got the goods, right? Like this is pure, like John Paul, the second level 
like distillation of holy water. That what nothing was nothing nothing was working, and and then it finally went, and it was a bright green flame. It was just the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Yeah, that's that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, uh, you know I, we've mentioned and we've talked about before. Like I'm a magician and I do mental magic or psychic magic, so I know a lot of tricks that can that your body plays on yourself. And in my shows, I try and take advantage of that. So there's one thing called psychonematic, uh, psychosomatic muscle movement. Your your mind is controlling your muscles in ways you don't even realize. It's so minuscule that it's not a, an obvious motion. So my theory on it was that that's what's happening with the Ouija board. You might not consciously mm. be moving this, but when you have like a group think going on, right? You have three or four people all touching the planchette mm. and you ask it, are you a, you know, a boy, the subconscious group is going to kind of use light muscle movement to move it towards the yes or the no, whichever the group would prefer. Mm. And you, you would think like, well, it's, you know, unlimited possibilities. It's really not right. It's, it's a yes or a no. And if two out of three people want it to be a yes, yeah, it's going to slide towards yes. So that's, that's kind of my take on that side of it, but that doesn't explain the supernatural activity that was happening. Yeah. So, uh, I, I would never do that again. I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know like for me growing up, we did a lot of like stupid stuff like that. And like my cousins and like my brother and sister, like we, I think we played with a Ouija board once, but it was like one of like the Mattel Ouija boards. It wasn't like an actual, like it was an, an actual Ouija board, but it was like the board game Ouija boards that they sold, you know? It wasn't like an ancient um, one found in, in an attic. Exactly. Yeah. It yeah. didn't come out of like the, the Jumanji box or anything like that. Um, and like we did that, but it was one of those things like you could kind of, like we were kids. So you could obviously tell that someone was trying to move the planchette. Um, and then as we got older, um, there was like the legend of, I don't know what they were called. Like some people called them like angel boards and some people called them something else where it's like you make one out of like paper, you get like construction paper and you make or like one a you glass draw. or shot glass. Yeah. And you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember we made a bunch of those at my grandma's house because my grandma's house was terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, um, and that one was different. That one felt more like kind of like what you were saying, where like it's, it could have been the, the psychosomatic stuff where, um, you know, someone was, you know, it, you couldn't feel it wasn't like the jerky movements of someone trying to push it while everyone else is holding it. Um, but that one was also when it would move around and spell things out, it was like gibberish. And so it never made sense to us, but which could have also been because one, we were still relatively young, like preteens, teenagers, um, and could have just fucked it up and like, you know, wrote the letters wrong and just confused the hell out of whoever was trying to talk to us. Um, or it could have been one of us like secretly messing with it. But like, I know we had done stuff with that, like the paper board that we had made. And usually that kind of coincided with some of like the weird stuff, like waking up at three in the morning and like the pots banging in the kitchen. Um, which like we always kind of joked around was like, you know, we screwed up the message. So it's trying to like send it to us in Morse code by like banging on the pots. <laughs> um, but it was weird. Yeah. Like never, like I still don't know if I want to play with like an actual, like we do not play with a Ouija board, but use an actual like Ouija board uh, because I'm kind of scared that we would probably fuck something up and bring something back or bring something out of it. And I don't really want that juju right now. Yeah, um, just going off my experience with it, I, I, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. There was definitely a correlation between the activity in the home and the use of that damn board. 
yeah so and that's yeah like and that's one of those things like looking back on like in the moment you're like ah oh, it could be coincidence but looking back on it like in like the clear 2020 hindsight you can see like the patterns and be like oh yeah like we definitely tried to burn a ouija board and then it didn't work and then all this weird shit happened like it makes perfect sense yeah so uh yeah. if you are listening and you haven't done it and you've been curious about it don't <laughs> that would be my advice yeah hard pass yeah i mean maybe i'll i don't think i've covered it yet but maybe i'll cover an episode on uh on ouija's but uh mm -hmm. definitely i do not recommend one star don't don't go don't <laughs> yeah, do it zero out of ten whatever yeah. all the kids say nowadays <laughs> only giving it one star because i can't put zero right that's that's where it's at don't nice. do it <laughs> and if you do decide to do it and go against our cautions uh let us know how it went i mean maybe you've had an experience we'd love to hear about it um yeah let and us if you know are yeah, if you're doing it, like do it on like Facebook or Instagram Live, like tag us and we'll watch you, uh, you know, potentially put your life in danger. Yeah, yeah, at your own own risk, because uh, we do not take any responsibility for your mortal soul. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that was our banter with the Beardsleys. Yay. Woo. So I do believe you are up, sir. All right. Alrighty, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm going to be covering the story of Bigfoot. And no, I'm not talking about myself and my size 16 shoes, but rather one of, if not probably the most famous cryptid in the world. I think it's between like Bigfoot and like Nessie, like the Loch Ness Monster. When it comes to cryptid, those are the two big ones that I think people know. And while there's a litany of information on the internet about Bigfoot, uh, I'm going to try to keep it to information that's as believable as possible because there's some tales that I read like Bigfoot being the leader of a group of aliens who've come to take over North America. But we all know that in, in reality, that title belongs to ALF. Anywho, uh, Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, is a large, hairy, ape-like creature that's believed to be slightly taller than the size of an adult human. Sightings of a large, hairy, ape-like creature date back hundreds of years, and there's evidence of petroglyphs found in the Tule River Indian Reservation in California that date back almost a thousand years and show what that ancient, those ancient natives called, quote, the family, and depicted large hairy creatures, where the largest was nicknamed Hairy Man. And throughout the Pacific Northwest in America and the Southwest portions of Canada, almost every native tribe or ancient group of peoples have some word in their language that translates to either Wild Man or Hairy Man. In fact, the name Sasquatch comes from a Native American tribe called the Nalaka Pamaks, that speak a language called Salishan. In that language, they call the creature Seskach, which translates to wild men. And despite the numerous names and translations, the weird thing is that they all, all these different peoples from varying regions all describe the creature the same. They're large, they're hairy. They're usually described as being as short as six feet tall and as tall as 15 feet tall. Uh, it's kind of hard sometimes to imagine how tall 15 feet is. So like if you live in the U.S., you live somewhere where the houses are built to like building codes, the ceiling in your room is most likely between eight and nine feet tall, depending on if you're on the ground floor or the second story or whatever. But now you want to take that height, almost double it, and that's the top range of height for a Bigfoot, which is pretty freaking scary if you ask me. Besides starch stature, the creatures are also described as having fur ranging from black to brown with hints of red in it. A company... The large, hairy creature is a smell that is described as rotten eggs or sometimes just smelling like a skunk. Side note, 
I kind of knew a lot of large hairy creatures that smelled like skunk when I was in college, but that could have also been more of the certain aspects of their lifestyle in the moment. So we'll leave that one alone. So why did we decide to come up with a common name for all these creatures and start calling it Bigfoot? Well, dear listener, because this is America and we, we assert our will over everything, regardless of whatever or whatever people want. But more to the point, we get the name thanks to an incident that took place in Humboldt County in Northern California back in 1958. Back in 58, a bulldozer operator for a logging company named Jerry Crew discovered a pair of giant footprints in the mud near their worksite. When they measured it, they were 16 inches long or 410 millimeters. Initially worried about telling his coworkers about the prints, he soon discovered that he had nothing to be worried about as the coworkers all began to talk about strange happenings at the worksite. Most notably was an oil drum that weighed 450 pounds or 200 kilograms and was moved around the camp despite anyone using the large movers on site. They originally thought someone was playing an elaborate hoax on them, but over time, more and more footprints began to show up. The workers then started to describe the mysterious visitor as, quote, Bigfoot, and the name was born. The foreman on the job site contacted a local reporter by the name of Andrew Gonzoli, who came out and interviewed the workers, took a plaster cast of the footprints, and then Gonzoli published the article and pictures of the cast on the front page of the newspaper on October 6, 1958. Almost immediately, large newspapers such as the LA Times and the New York Times contacted Gonzoli for the story, and soon the name Bigfoot was known all over the country. Now, I mentioned the Pacific Northwest earlier, and this is for good reason, because of the thousands of reported sightings of large, hairy creatures we would call Bigfoot, about a third of them all occur within the Pacific Northwest and southern parts of Canada. In fact, an author and expert on Sasquatch named John Green compiled a list of over 1,300 sightings in the 19th and 20th century alone for his book. After the 1958 Humboldt sighting and the cast was taken, the sightings obviously took off. Some reports say that upwards of 10,000 sightings have officially been reported as of 2019. Now, with all these sightings, why don't we have more evidence of Bigfoot? Well, sadly, like most things related to cryptids, a good amount of these so-called sightings are bullshit. Either it's people trying to find some fame and say they saw something but are soon discredited, or it's the result of people just deliberately pranking and hoaxing trying to perpetrate you know this image and it's just based on people looking for fun i'll get into some of those in a little bit and i just want to say there's also a lot of reports of similar creatures all across the country and the world you know such as like the skunk monster in the southeast of the united states the yeti the yiren the yowie just to name a few i won't cover those different settings as they're slightly different and based more geographically regioned and i sure i'm going to cover those or one of us is going to cover them in a future topic the one big sighting slash encounter that I really want to go into is probably the most famous video related to Bigfoot. I know you've probably all seen clips of this or at least a single frame from this video because it's the most used picture whenever someone talks about Bigfoot. The video in question is called the Patterson-Gimlin film and it was shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. They shot the video while exploring areas of the forest outside Bluff Creek in Orleans, California, which is in Humboldt County. Originally, before this, Patterson and Gimlin set out in May of 1967 to film a sort of documentary about an incident that occurred in 1924 in Washington State, where a group of miners were attacked by what they claimed were ape men. Side note, I purposely didn't include the story of the ape men attack in my script because the reports and the recounts of the tale have all been pretty thoroughly debunked as of like modern day by investigators, and 
it's a good part of Bigfoot lore, but I didn't want to go into the whole story just to tell you, oh, by the way, it's all not real. Um, I value your to your time too much for that. So we're gonna get back to just this part of the story. So two men set out to film a documentary, although I don't know why they picked the forest in Humboldt County and not travel to Washington, but I'm not here to judge them. What is known is they set out with a team of people to set up some shots and carry gear and the like. After getting their shots and footage, they went back home to process the film and edit and do whatever filmmakers do at home. That's when they got word from Patterson's wife that there was a string of sightings in the area they were just shooting in. So in October of 1967, they returned to the river area and began hunting for actual ape people. Gimlin would later go on to say he was pretty skeptical of the whole idea of Bigfoot, but the fact that Patterson was so enthusiastic and persistent, he agreed. He said that he had to help no matter how, no matter what he could do. According to Gimlin, on Friday, October 20th, 1967, the two men were riding northwest along the east bank of the Bluff Creek when, sometime during the early afternoon, they, quote, came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek, almost as high as a room. They rode along the creek and discovered dozens of trees that had fallen and were laying around the, the shore scattered haphazardly after a flood had gone through the area a few years earlier. Gimlin states that both he and Patterson spotted something at almost the same time. He says it was a figure, but they couldn't really make it out, just that it was, quote, crouching beside the creek to their left. It was just standing there on the opposite side of the bank. Patterson would go on to say he thought the creature was about six foot six, but would later say after watching footage that it was closer to seven foot six. Gimlin said it was closer to six feet in height. Regardless, the creature then stood upright and began to walk away. They described the creature as having silvery brown hair, but at times when the light hit it, it was dark reddish brown and sometimes black. They also noted that it had pretty prominent breasts, so they assumed it was female. Patterson guessed that he was about 25 feet from the creature and that his horse got spooked and reared up, so he had to spend some time getting the horse settled, get himself off the horse, and then grabbing his camera to record. He then yelled to Gimlin to, quote, cover me, referencing the gun they had brought with him. Patterson then ran across the creek with Gimlin following on horseback. When Patterson stopped to focus his camera, Gimlin says he got off his horse, but he didn't point the gun at the creature because they had agreed beforehand not to shoot if they found one unless it was a dire situation. As for the footage, Patterson estimated the creature had gotten about 120 feet away before he took off after it, and therefore the beginning of the film is pretty shaky because he's running after the creature. When he was about 80 feet from the creature or so, Patterson says it glanced back over its shoulder and looked right at him. He said, Patterson said he got so scared he fell to his knees, and he would later describe the initial moment to researcher John Green, who I mentioned earlier, and I'm pulling a good amount of research from his book, that the creature looking at him stared at him with, quote, contempt and disgust. You know how it is when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game. That's how it felt, end quote. While Patterson is on his knees, we get the clearest shot of the video, and it's also where we get the image you have probably all seen. The creature sort of turns back to look again while walking, so it's sort of looking over its shoulder back towards them. This is called the frame 352 shot, as it equates to the 352nd frame of the video. Patterson claimed the creature turned a total of three or four times, but most of the time it was when he was running after it or he just wasn't filming. After frame 352, the creature appears to get lost in the woods for about 15 seconds before reappearing briefly in a scene for the final 15 seconds of the film, with Patterson trying to get closer for a better view. At this point, the creature disappears, so Gimlin gets back on his horse and attempts to follow the creature for about 300 yards before being called back to Patterson because he was scared the creature's mate might show up and attack him. 
Together, they attempted to track the creature from some distance between a mile and three miles before giving up and returning to camp. At camp, they, gra they grabbed their materials to make some plaster molds of footprints that they had saw. The two men gathered the cast and their gear and hightailed it back to the nearest town where Patterson made a frantic call to his brother-in-law asking for him to call a scientist they knew named Donald Abbott. Abbott being, quote, the only scientist of any stature to have demonstrated any serious interest in the Bigfoot subject. But sadly, Abbott declined. Patterson then shipped the film to his brother-in-law who lived in a bigger city and could have the film developed faster. The next morning, Patterson and Gimlin returned to their campsite near the creek, but were unable to continue their search due to a pending storm in the area. They told their tale to the park ranger nearby who claimed he had visited the day two days before on Thursday and he hadn't seen anything. However, after some light rain, the ranger, named Lyle Laverty, said he visited the area on the following Monday and took photos of tracks that he had found on the ground that were of large feet. Lyle Laverty also went on to run the National Park Service under President Bush, so he has a little bit of credibility. When the video was released, many people came forward to prove that it was a hoax. Patterson and Gimlin went on a six-city tour where they showed off their footage and their coverage reignited the buzz around Bigfoot from a decade earlier. Strangely enough, the film didn't really intrigue scientists because they all pretty much thought it was staged due to the previous documentary the men were working on. They assumed the two men had costumes and equipment to easily fake the video. But eventually over time, and as the two men stuck to their stories, the scientific community started to come around namely anthropologists, zoologists, and biologists at first, but eventually it would come to be studied and shown nationwide by top wildlife experts trying to discuss, trying to discover what it is. To this day, the video has never been discredited or debunked, and even after Robert, Roger Patterson got cancer and had the opportunity for a deathbed confession, he remained steadfast in his statement that it was all true. Bob Gimlin is still alive and has done several interviews on the subject. So, that video aside, what is Bigfoot? Is it a monster? Some weird mutation? Is it actually aliens? Well, most scientists think the sightings of creatures attributed to Bigfoot are probably just cases of misidentification. They cite the common American black bear, which can grow pretty large and when it stands on its hind legs, can on average get upwards of seven or eight feet tall. Others state that it could be actual large apes that have escaped from local zoos and are wandering the forest. Still others say that it's probably just humans, like actual humans that are just dressed up. There's been several cases in the last years alone about hunters who've shot human beings who were dressed either in long furs and camouflage or others in like shamanistic, you know, ceremonies getting shot because they look like a giant ape. However, in 2007, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization published photos from a trail camera that they claim was a photo of Bigfoot. The Pennsylvania Game Commission was quick to debunk the photo by saying it's merely a black bear with mange, but several anthropologists and zoologists came forward to refute that dismissal, saying the limbs were not a proportionate to that of a black bear, and they likened it to more of a chimpanzee or some other type of ape, albeit larger than most known species. Unfortunately for Bigfoot lovers ever, everywhere, there's a ton of hoaxes out there, like I said earlier. Most notably, the story of the origin of the name for Bigfoot back in 1958, was supposedly a hoax perpetrated by one of the workers named Ray Wallace. His family came forward in 2002 after his death and said that it was just a prank. I don't know why Ray wouldn't make the admission before he died, but perhaps maybe something he wasn't proud of. There's also been several sightings of large, hairy creatures spotted that have later been identified as someone dressing up in a suit. In fact, in 2012, a man was killed in Montana when he was hit by a car while walking down the side of the road in a ghillie suit, which is tricked out to look like a large, hairy ape creature.
Personally, my theory is kind of along the lines of noted anthropologist Grover Krantz, who believes the sightings are based on a large group of hominids descending from Gigantopithecus. While almost all the fossils found of the giant ape-like Gigantopithecus are from Asia, Krantz believes they could have migrated via the Bering land bridge with other early humanoids. I don't know if it's, you know, it may not be a Gigantopithecus relative, but some kind of early hominid offshoot. And I know that probably sounds a little crazy, but there's so many caves and dense forests, especially up in the Pacific Northwest, that we really haven't fully explored and we don't really know what's all down there. And one last quick story before I go. In the late 1880s, there was a hunter and frontiersman named Carl Bowman who told his story, who told a story to a young outdoorsman by the, who went by the name Ted. Carl told Ted about an encounter he and another hunter had with a large ape-like creature. Bowman recalled that he had set up camp and did some hunting only to return to camp and all their food and supplies were gone or severely damaged. Seeing it was pretty late in the day, they called it a night and Bowman decided that in the morning, they're just going to pack up and they would leave. They didn't get much sleep that night because they were woken up by the sounds of grunting and a shadowy figure moving across their, their tent and accompanied by some pretty terrible smells. They stayed up the entire night and when the first light of the morning appeared, they split up. Bowman went to gather their traps while his partner finished gathering what he could salvage from the remaining gear. When Bowen returned to the camp, he found his partner dead with his neck bent at a bad angle and bite marks all along his chest and neck. Terrified, Bowman fled and never returned to the spot. Bowman never claimed that it was Sasquatch, but it, it, the descriptions, the sounds of it do sound pretty familiar to me. And normally I would kind of bypass the story as just another tall tale if it wasn't for the source. Not Bowman, but his friend Ted. I saw the story as part of a book called The Wilderness Hunt. In the book, Ted recalls a story in meeting with Carl Bowman in great detail. So who is Ted, you may ask? No, he's not trying to meet your mother. He's too busy being a badass outdoorsman for that. He eventually went on to fight in a war, becoming a pretty rough rider when it came to horses. And I guess he would kind of take another big job when he became president eventually. As you see, Ted was Theodore Roosevelt. And it seems that he was a pretty firm believer in Bigfoot before the name Bigfoot was even a thing. And that, my bearded friends, is the story of the legend of Bigfoot. I'm just imagining Theodore Roosevelt meeting a Bigfoot <laughs> right. and then punching it in yeah, the face. Yeah, he would just like try to fight it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that I, I that video, that um, the real famous video, what's the name of that? Where the two friends? Patterson-Gimlin. The Patterson-Gimlin tape. If you don't know that you've seen it, you've seen it. Yeah, exactly. It's the most famous photo and uh, video of Bigfoot ever. It's that grainy footage of him walking across the clearing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that was fake, we were just talking about it off air. If, if we were in that situation and you know, you pranked me and dressed up as Bigfoot and walked across a clearing while I'm holding a rifle, right. <laughs> I'm probably going to put you down. Exactly. Yeah. Like that is such a big risk because you have adrenaline, fear, just mm -hmm. so many things happening all at once. That's a lot of faith and trust to put into somebody. Yeah. And like if they faked it, they had like a, a crew with them or, you know, like set things up. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's a really like that's a long time, you know, 50 years to still keep telling that story and just like, you know, not burying anything. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like we talked last week where it's like, if you're able to recount the story for so long and like the story never changes after that long a time, like it has to lend some credibility, I think, 
to the story where it's like nobody's that good of a liar to keep the story exactly how it's you know exactly the same granted patterson died pretty early you know he, he died like 10 years after the video was shot when he got cancer so it's not like gimlin had to really corroborate a story but during the time that patterson was alive they their stories were you know pretty synced up the only like minor details were like the height and like the movements of the creatures but they were in different spots so based on where the trees are and stuff like that it's kind of explainable to say oh like he looked taller from a distance because he was either closer or, or you know there was bigger trees at the angle that he was looking like there's ways of kind of explaining it but it's just it's it's bizarre to me and like i said you know in the story like i think there's so much shit up there there's so much like thick forest and like cave systems and stuff like that that's just unexplored territory that we you know there's it's impossible for us to say there's no way there's nothing out there yeah it's this endless vast wilderness yeah and, and you know when the scientists are saying well that's not a bigfoot that's definitely an ape on the mm. trap cam that they they got on the the road yeah. there i'm no zoologist <laughs> but i'm pretty sure there aren't great apes that live in the forests of the pacific northwest right or montana wherever that was there's no yeah. there's no apes that are natural out here mm. so that's a fine and dandy you know excuse to use yeah. like oh it's just an ape there's exactly. not supposed yeah. to be apes yeah. out there apes that don't live in the region yeah right like there's yeah. no way so yeah it was it was one of those things where it's like yeah they're like oh like it's not it's definitely not a bear they're trying to like refute like the game commission saying that oh it's just a bear with mange like it's not a bear it's got to be an ape like creature completely missing the point that like that's not a creature that's native to you know <laughs> the united states at all like it's right <laughs> it makes no sense it's insane. Um, and I thank you for covering this. Bigfoot is one mm -hmm. of the earliest legends that got me into the paranormal mm -hmm. to yeah. begin with. It, it's, I love it. Yeah. I've always been fascinated. I would love to go on a hike or a hunt. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be a blast. And yeah, I don't know. There's, I don't think you, you can't prove a negative, right? You can't prove he doesn't exist because there's no evidence that he doesn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, man. Awesome job tonight. Thank you. So if somebody wanted to write in and give us a topic idea, a banter with the Beardsleys, just say hi, or tell us one of their Ouija board experiences, yeah. where and how can they do that? They can do that by contacting us at any of our social medias. Our Instagram is at beardedthingspod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash beardedthings. We do have that cool Facebook group that we plug every episode. Please, if you're listening to this, go join it right now. It's the Bearded Things Bearded Friends group. You can find it on Facebook and there's a lot of fun stuff. We talk about a lot of different things in that group. So please come join us. You can also visit our YouTube page, which is at beardedthings and, or at beardedthingspod and our Twitter is at beardedthings. We also have a website, which is beardedthings.com. On there is a contact us page. You can fill it out, send it to us. It comes to our emails. And speaking of emails, you can contact us at contact us at beardedthings.com. That should just about do it for us this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.